It was as if a switch had gone off inside his Gentile neighbors, and they too were no longer human. They were monsters. For the first time, but certainly not the last, Yoshka Lovey wondered what tells the human mind when to switch into this monster mode. Was there a magic word like Emet switches on the golem? After all, an ancestor of his, Rabbi Yehuda Lowe of Prague, had simply placed one word, Emet, on a lump of clay, and the clay became a protector of the Jewish people. Yashka whispered it three times, Emet, 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 truth, truth, truth. That was a passage from my memoir, but the memory is not mine. It was passed down to me by my grandfather. It happened in 1918, exactly a century ago, when my grandfather was a little boy. He was hiding inside a wine barrel in Pax, Hungary. Through the cork hole, he could view the ugly violence of a pogrom. He watched as neighbors of his, people who used to shop at his grandparents' store and to whom they extended credit, suddenly became monsters. That is what was so shocking to my grandfather about what he witnessed a century ago. It wasn't that some people hated Jews, he already knew that. It was the feeling of betrayal that those who would do violence against Jews, against his grandparents, against him, were people who he thought were his family's friends. Today you're going to meet two people, two Jewish idealists who thought they were fighting alongside people who believed as they did, who believed in social justice, but found instead that their status as Jews placed them apart from their peers. Anti-Semitism on the right is expected. It's a given. Jews are used to Nazis. But when Jewish activists face hatred from the left, it stings harder because these are people who are supposed to have their back. And this seems to be happening more and more. Under the guise of anti-Zionism, it's spilling over into blatant anti-Semitism. There are those who say that we shouldn't confuse the two, but it's getting more and more difficult. Through layers and layers of mythology about Jews and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jews are being made to feel uncomfortable, and in some cases actually purged from causes they believe in. My name is Howard Lovey, and this is my new program I'm calling Emet, Truth. I'll tell you more about me later, but first, I want everybody to meet Gretchen Rachel Hammond. I'd been obsessed with the U.S. since I was a child. I mean, the, the U.S. had been marketed very, very well back in the 80s. You know, Reagan's Shining City on the Hill, and, and you had all these TV shows, Dallas, Dynasty, Starsky and Hutch, shows that made America look like a place where anything could happen and you could do anything. I mean, I was this effeminate-looking, half-Indian kid in this mostly white school. I was, I was getting the hell kicked out of me every single day. And it made it so difficult to get up uh, without this, you know, terrible fear of what was going to happen to me today. And then one day, uh, in, in 1981, uh, I'll never forget it, um, the BBC showed the miniseries Masada with Peter O'Toole and Peter Strauss. He came to Masada. He was kept here under my protection. But I can expect to be sent for. Before they left, their lives would change forever. The ones on top of that mountain are willing to die to defeat you. Masada, it shall not fall. We down here, we slaves or not. And uh, it was a four-part miniseries, and I was absolutely enraptured with it. In the background, by the way, you heard Gretchen's dogs, Lucy and Schroeder, bark in agreement. So here is this kid who is beat up every day at school, 
watching Jewish heroes standing up against great odds. To Gretchen, this was defiance and bravery, no matter how the story of Masada ended. It was an actual incredible act of defiance, and it was punctuated by Peter O'Toole's beautiful speech that ends that miniseries where he says, you know, when they said, well, sir, you won, and he goes, won? What have we won? Um, I can I do my best Peter O'Toole here. We've won a rock, middle of a desert, on the shores of a poison sea. And he did it with such irony and such defeat. I'm like, well, they beat him. So while her father was Hindu and her mother Church of England, the idea of a Judaism of defiance stayed with Gretchen. To Gretchen, Jews were not the nebbishes of Woody Allen movies, but defiant heroes. And as she grew, she learned more and more about Judaism and Jewish history. And she found that she identified with Jews in many different ways, especially the sense of being outcasts wherever they were. I was hounded uh, at that school. The same way the state of Israel is hounded, you know, you can't do anything right if, if you're an Israeli. Anything you do is, is wrong in the eyes of certain people. You could go and, and you could be the Mother Teresa of your day, and yet, if you're an Israeli, they will still call you a Zionist, apartheid-loving, you know, monster. It's like you can't do anything right. And that's how I certainly felt in grammar school in the UK. And yet, you know, you know, Judaism, in a way, um, saved my life. Before we leave Gretchen's childhood, there's one more thing you should know. Maybe you've already guessed. She was born male, but she has since transitioned to be female. When you're three or four years old, you look at the mirror and you say, there's something wrong here. I can't put my finger on it. I'm a child. I don't know what it is, but my body looks wrong and that stays with you for the rest of your life. And yeah, you, you get a lot of therapy and, and they, they make sure they go through it step by step by step and, and say, yeah, you have gender dysphoria. And it's funny when you finally get that diagnosis and you can actually put a finger on what has been wrong all your entire life, um, then you then it's kind of a moment where you go, you breathe a huge sigh of relief at the same time as you gulp in fear. I will often tell people, you know, especially those who have sort of issues, you know, on the right about this, that this isn't something any any transgender person chooses to do. No one wakes up. No one is that bored that they wake up in the morning and go, oh, I don't know, I'm bored. You know what I think I'll do? I think I'll go and alienate my family, ruin any chances I've got of a career, engage in hundreds of painful surgeries that I can't possibly afford, and uh, make myself a social outcast for the rest of my life. Okay, so eventually Gretchen realizes the first of two childhood dreams. She emigrates to the United States, becoming a full citizen in 1996, what she calls one of the proudest moments of her life. Then she began working as a fundraiser for the causes she believes in. I began in um, fundraising when I first came to America from the United Kingdom out of college. And I, I um, pretty much uh, started um, my, my working career in fundraising. And I stayed in that for about 15 years. And, you know, when you're a fundraiser, you've got to be an idealist. You're not in there to make a lot of money. You're there to make money for the organization. I got involved with an organization called the Survivors Network for those abused by priests in 2008. 12 became their director of development. She worked for nonprofits, did some grant writing, but in 2013 she met the publisher of the Windy City Times, an LGBTQ paper, and was invited to write for them. 
And that's when Gretchen truly found her calling. I started that back in the fall of 2013 and suddenly, like like fundraising, discovered I had this, not only this knack for it, but the difference was that I had an absolute love for it. Every single day that I was writing and, and being a, a journalist for Windy City Times, and let's face it, I wasn't getting paid much. It was a small, local, left-wing LGBT paper. But, you know, I made it work. And, you know, I, I just relished every single day. And then when I started getting into investigative work, any investigative journalist will tell you it, it's, it's an extraordinary feeling. It is, it is the most tiring work. You can do 20, hour, 20 hours a day, however many days you need, uh, months, weeks that you need. But, you know, as you're uncovering teeny little pieces of, of the puzzle or, or you're taking a canvas that's co- covered with black soot and you're and you're slowly rubbing away the black soot and you, you're revealing an image every day you, you reveal another part of the image there's a rush there's this excitement you you, you you're like wow i'm onto something you know the first investigative report i did was about a transgender woman who had been held in the cook county jail for four years without a trial um just for defending herself and that was linked to two murders as well on the on the west side of chicago it's a very violent area of chicago so, you know, uh, that investigative report eventually got her released. Um, that's the reward that you get. You know, uh, sometimes you can change lives. I did an investigative series on ICE uh, and ICE detention centers. And this was way back before it became a huge issue that it is today. Um, you know, so again, there was a lot. It seemed like Gretchen finally had what she wanted, a meaningful career in the United States and life as a woman. It was time to fulfill her second childhood ambition. Once I transitioned and, you know, and once I'd settled in at Windy City Times in 2016, I donated a kidney to a reader of the newspaper. Shortly after that, I began studying to to convert to Judaism because I, I, I it was this point. I'd reached this point in life where I wanted to do everything I had not done. Uh, help people, um, live for other people, not myself, but also do the one thing I wanted to do for myself, and that was to convert to Judaism. By the way, you heard that right. She donated a kidney to a reader who was suffering from kidney failure. Was it her Judaism? Well, no, not really. I, th- you know, you know, we talk about tikkun olam, and I agree with it. I, um, I just, I just don't think you you should be giving or helping people just because you feel that that is what your religion. Um, you know, commands you. I think it should come from the heart. Okay, that is Gretchen's backstory. I thought it was important for everybody to know where she came from, what her struggles and accomplishments were, and how she arrived at what would become an epicenter of controversy. Now we are ready to talk about the Chicago Dyke March in June 2017. You might have heard about it. It made national news. The Dyke March it had always been, I, I'd always had a lot of fun with it. I, I mean, the Dyke March was not like, you know, the regular Pride Parade where you had the same floats sponsored by companies and, you know, politicians would show up to give their lip service and wave at people. And, um, you know, it's, it's a miserable experience for me. It goes on far too long and, and you, you leave with Lady Gaga pounding in your head because that's all they play. The Dyke March was, was, had a lot more meaning than that. It, it wasn't corporate sponsored. It was a bunch of people who got together. And of course, this being Chicago, they had various social issues that they would always, you know, um, that they everyone was there to sort of support each other, whether that was LGBT rights or workers rights or immigrant rights or get rid of the corrupt politicians, this, that and the other. Um, stop the gun violence. There was there was always a, there was always a cause or several causes. You could feel the sense of community, the sense of, of love. 
that permeated every moment of that. So I go out and started out well enough, and I, I noticed a few Palestinian flags, and you know, I don't really think anything of it. I'm like, okay, so there's some Palestinians marching in this too. Fair enough. But then they started chanting, chanting from the river to the sea, you know, Palestine will be free, you know, which is that old chant which basically says, wipe Israel off the map. Then they get to this park where they have a rally. Um, the rally had started, it was about, oh, I'd say about an hour in when I got this text from my publisher saying she'd got a tip that three Jewish women had, had uh, she got a text from one of them saying that she'd been thrown out and could I go find them? And um, so I started looking along the outskirts of the of the rally, along the, the sidewalk. Um, and there they were, the three of them. I, I recognized one of them, Laurel Grauer. Um, she'd been very active in the LGBT community for a long time. So I immediately recognized her. And she's standing there with two two other friends. And they, they looked like the earth had been taken out from underneath them. So, of course, I went up to them and I said, Laurel, what, what happened? She told me, as I remember... She said that someone had approached her about the flag that she was holding um, that had the, you know, the pride flag with the Star of David on it and said that it was making the, um, the Palestinians there feel uncomfortable and it was triggering them and that they had been asked to leave and that she'd initially refused. Um, but then someone, I think from Jewish Voice of Peace, had started yelling and screaming at her and, you know, this went on for about... Um, you know, an hour during the rally. And finally, um, the, the three of them relented. You know, the witness that I spoke to said it was the most awful thing. You know, she said it, it was just, I, I, I never seen anything like that happen at this dyke march. And, and, you know, it's not what the march was supposed to be all about. She personally was not offended. She's a reporter, and this was a story. So Gretchen puts herself in reporter mode. She goes out and gets comment from Dyke March people, reached out to organizers and also to Jewish Voice for Peace, files a story at around 11 p.m. that night. It goes through the normal editing process. The publisher reads it, gives it an okay, and then Gretchen goes to bed. And the next morning, I wake up and, you know, I've got like a hundred different emails, a hundred different texts. This thing is all over the place. Um, I don't know who picked it up first, but one of the, I think it was one of the Jewish outlets, either Haaretz or, or the JTA, had picked this up somehow. And then every news media organization in the U.S. had picked it up. And then, um, you know, every gay publication in the U.S. had picked it up. You know, so you know how the news cycle works. The news is coming, shock, horror, this, that, and the other. Um, and then the next day, that's when all the op-eds start coming out. How dare they? How could they? Etc. 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 The next day, statements came in from the Dyke March organizers and also a group called A Wider Bridge, which connects LGBTQ groups in Israel and the United States. The first statement that came out, I, I remember getting into a huge argument with my publisher because she said she wanted to go back to the original story and include that entire statement. Now, a wider bridge had also in, uh, written a statement. And I said, well, if you're going to include the entire Dyke March's statement, you need to include the entire wider bridge's statement. Otherwise, it's not a balanced story. 
And I certainly, and I, I, I'm certainly against that. Not because I, I, I feel anything particularly strongly about the Dyke March. It's because all of a sudden, what had been what I felt was a balanced story would not be a balanced story, because then you'd have, you know, an entire. I mean, the statement from the Dyke March, which was, you know, close to three or four paragraphs long. She said, well, I, you can you include a paragraph from the Wider Bridge. That's all you can do. What had happened by the third day? You know, despite all their statements, despite all their, you know, protestations, their stories would change. First of all, it was, you know, that they made the Palestinians. That was the story I got, that they made the Palestinians uncomfortable. Then it was that they had tried to disrupt the march. But when, when they were shouting from Israel to the sea, Palestine will be free. And apparently Laurel Grower had shouted from, from the border to the sea, everyone will be free. But how one person disrupts a march of 1500, of course, no one bought that. And then it became a grand conspiracy. I remember this. I remember this to this day, that apparently a wider bridge had planted Grauer and her two friends there in order to create this issue that would be then picked up by the national media and the worldwide media. Somehow they had the foresight, the Dyke March, or, uh, the wider bridge had the foresight to know that this was all going to happen, A to B to C. And that evening, I started getting phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call. Um, you have a website and, you know, my then landline was there and I was getting all these phone calls on my landline on my cell phone. And, um, you know, people calling me a kike and um, people whose voices I recognize because I covered this community forever. People saying you, they were going to fuck me over. They were never going to. Sorry about the language, but, you know, this is what they were saying. Um, that I was never going to work in this business, that they were going to hound me out, that, you know, I was I was done as a reporter. I mean, you name it, it, it came up. Uh, traded to the transgender community. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, just it, it just was never ending. Um, I, horrible. I, I, I did not sleep that night. I mean, I, this was this was a community that, you know, I had advocated for for four years. And I'm not playing the miserable victim here. It It just... It stung because I, I, I had worked so darn hard in, in t making sure that the that, that, that Windy City Times covered these stories. And then I remember posting something on my Facebook that night saying I, I want out of this transgender community. I said, I mean, you guys are, are, are just awful. I, I said, I mean, I mean, it's, it's the most awful thing. I, I'm regretting ever identifying with this um and about two hours had passed when i think it was about six in the morning tracy called me um and said um you um, need to go uh on a two-week leave of absence and i said why she says that you you need to do that and i i so did uh, i went on this two-week leave of absence i went down to my mum's actually and then about three days into that, um, she called me and said, I've made a decision. You cannot write for the, the newspaper anymore. You, you can stay on in, in the sales if you want. Um, she said, you know how much pressure I'm getting? Do you know how many calls I'm getting? Thousands and thousands of calls from people saying, you know, that we're screwing them over this, that and the other. And how, how could we and blah, 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 blah. And I, 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 you know, so I think a lot of this was was pressure from the same audience that she she was trying to court. The Black Lives Matter followers, the UIC followers, the social justice warriors, how dare you you, you write this pro-Zionist stuff. The sound clip of the 2017 Dyke March was courtesy of the Windy City Times. 
I reached out to Tracy Bame, publisher of the Windy City Times, who issued the following statement, quote, Windy City Times stands by our coverage of the 2017 Dyke March controversy. We do not comment about internal personnel decisions, but anything to do with personnel changes was separate from articles we published. End quote. She left the Windy City Times, but she did find a one-year fellowship with a Jewish publication, Tablet Magazine. She vowed never to cover the LGBTQ community again. It's, it's not admitting defeat. Uh, it, it's, it's taking a stand that, you know, I, you know, I care more about Judaism and Jews um, uh, than I do uh, um, about LGBTQ people. Uh, if I, it seems like I've been given a choice and I've made that choice. And I've come down on the side of Judaism and the Jewish community. And that is it. That's period. That's the end. So where the, the transgender community had kicked me to the curb and the Jewish community that picked, you, picked me up and as, they, as Jews tend to do and, and, and sort of surrounded me and said, no, this shall not be. And, um, you know, protected one of their own. That does not happen in the transgender community anymore. Uh, not if you're not in the right, po- you're not not if you're in the right political place with them. Politically, I'm homeless in terms of where I stand, left or right, because now I've seen the ugliness of extremists on my side. That kind of anti-Semitic, horrific kind of actions, all under the guise of anti anti-Zionism, from the left. Um, you see the kind of horrific actions from the right. So where do you fall? You you kind of you kind of like I I've always been all my life, sort of nomadic, not staying in one place or the other. And I, and I think that's that's where I've remained. But as far as Judaism goes, uh, at least I believe I found a home here. But no, well, no matter where I end up, you know, Howard, I I I, I I'll always be a Jew. You don't know everything, Howard, Lemya told me, her eyes rolling slightly, revealing just a hint of humor, letting me know that she was both kidding and not kidding. It was 1985, and we were both working at my college newspaper at Wayne State University in Detroit. I did not know much about her, except I heard that she was Palestinian and had escaped from an abusive marriage. You think you know a lot, but you don't know everything, she said. Well, a more accurate statement might have been that I didn't know anything. She was 30 years old, and I was only 19, and there were a great many things I did not know. But Lemia was specifically referring to my lack of knowledge about Arab culture and the way they think about historical and current grievances. I saw this in the angry letters to the editor I was receiving over my coverage of controversy over a book. A kind of silly-looking book. Turned out the book was not a book at all, but really a funhouse mirror through which one could view many layers of distortions. A few days earlier, Rabbi Oppenheimer of the Campus Hillel approached me at the student center. He tossed a book near my lunch tray and then hovered above me and asked, Guess what I found the Muslim Students Association selling at Manugian Hall? It wasn't really a book. It was more like a pamphlet. On the cover were a strange combination of words that actually struck me as funny. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. I didn't know what to make of it. There was an undertone of what I took to be a Jewish sarcasm right there in the title. It seemed like it could be the script for a new Mel Brooks movie. You know, like Jews in Space. I looked up at the rabbi with a half grin on my face, waiting for the punchline. Instead, there was silence. He let out a tiny sigh and sat down next to me. Surely you've heard of the protocols, Oppenheimer said. My blank stare was his answer. 
I grinned slightly. The name still sounded funny to me. I'll leave this here with you, said the rabbi, who was not smiling at all. Read it, and then come see me at Hillel, and I'll give you a statement for your story. My story? I had never agreed to write a story on this. But, nevertheless, I flipped the book open, and the more I read, the more curious I became. It was filled with what I found to be laughable lines about one-world government under the control of international Jewry. This is what Lembia was trying to tell me when she said that I did not know everything. It does not matter if the protocols are true, she said. Most Arab Muslims believe they are true, so that is the reality you deal with. We are Semites ourselves, said Mohammed, the association's president, speaking to me in a cramped office at the student center. How can we be anti-Semitic? Muhammad was to become my nemesis for the next three years. But I was only in college, was learning as I went along, and had not yet had my full immersion into Arab culture with Lembia and her friends. That would come later. And through it, an appreciation of how very alike Jews and Arabs were in many respects. At that moment, though, at the age of 19, I thought I knew what an anti-Semite was. I wrote the story about the protocols of the elders of Zion, which led to my friendship with Lembia who would change my life in many ways. Strangely, my story would be plagiarized by an intern at the Detroit Jewish News, leading to the firing of the intern, who was replaced by me. This unexpectedly led to my career as a Jewish journalist, and eventually, years later, managing editor of JTA, a Jewish news service. I hadn't meant these things to happen, but I felt I was being dragged there by this state of Jewishness that I could not escape. It was a voice that was always there since as long as I had conscious thought. It was sometimes my grandfather's voice. Other times, I interpreted it as God's. It could not have been my own, since there were obviously forces outside myself at play. I was convinced of it. The tics, the habits, even the waking sleep paralysis and night terrors I had mistaken for God much of my life. What else could they be? But by 1985, I knew that it was a flaw in me. The voice was more than an impulse. It was much more dark persistent, life-swallowing, than the narcissism of youth. That is an excerpt from my memoir in progress. It shows how far I still needed to travel, at the age of 19, toward any kind of understanding of this interplay between perception and truth that's at the heart of not only the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but many conflicts around the world. We tell each other stories to come up with narratives that make us feel good, and then we obsessively stick to them. I suffer from OCD, so that kind of obsession was, and still is, a part of who I am. The trick is to break free of rigid rituals of action and belief. Otherwise, we keep trying the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results. And, well, we all know that's the definition of madness. This brings me to my next guest. Nisi Jacobs is a longtime social justice activist who recently co-founded a group called Women's March for All. What was wrong with the original Women's March? Well, for some reason, its leaders stopped advocating for women and instead pivoted the movement to a rabidly anti-Israel stance and embrace of anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan. Nisi and many other Jews in the women's movement were left wondering why they were suddenly under attack. Nisi and I recently met to discuss how the Women's March was hijacked and what it means for the future of Jewish social justice activism. As you'll hear, she also felt deeply betrayed by the movement for very personal reasons, too. So, Nisi and the Women's March for All are trying to break out of this destructive pattern of Jews joining, then being disappointed. I happened to be in New York City on vacation when we spoke, so you'll hear the sounds of the city around us. Forgive the audio quality, but that's New York City. 
Okay, so before we go back, go into the founding of the Women's March for All, let's kind of go back into more like who you are. What brought you to this point? I think I got involved right before the Iraq War started, um, and that was pretty much a turning point. Um, 9-11 was a huge turning point. So I've been involved in politics and activism, and then after Trump was elected, uh, my main focus became elections. And I also have uh, an organization called Flip Sisters, which has been assisting a network of organizations that are bringing can candidates and campaigns from the grassroots up and getting them elected. So, so why? Where, where does your activism come from? I guess the roots of my activism come from uh, the women's movement, not the women's march. That's very recent and mm -hmm. pretty superficial compared. Feminism um, is just a part of who you are. Uh, it's not necessarily driven by Judaism. It's not Judaism isn't necessarily the driving force behind it. It's just one of many right. one, one of many factors. Right. right? Uh, how how Jewish do you, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as culturally Jewish, uh, religious? Uh, uh, where is it in your life? Uh, I was raised as an atheist. And I'm pretty much I'm an atheist. I'm not involved in any religious practices without much focus on being Jewish other than knowing that I'd had anti-Semitic experiences. And um, my father has had a lot of anti-Semitic experiences which have impacted him a lot. You know, I have a, I have a sensitivity to it. What happened was suddenly the Women's March became about anti-semitism and about Israel and it was never meant to be it was always meant to be about Trump saying that he could grab anyone's pussy and uh, get away with it because he was rich and famous you know and that was why we marched so so why does it matter to you whether a couple of the leaders suddenly decide that they're that this is also about the Palestinian cause so when it became too much to be quiet. I just couldn't be quiet at a certain point. I was very upset and I had, you know, I just couldn't stay quiet. I started to communicate with a lot of women that were very upset. And they expressed that they felt scared and uncomfortable. And it was, it's impacting a lot of women actually in their jobs. Because a lot of women right now are in the gun control um, activism world, including actually working for organizations. And the gun control community is completely um, allied with the Women's March board. So they do actions together. And a lot of the Jewish women, whether they're religious or not, they're still Jewish, you know, they don't want to work with the Women's March Board, and when they communicate this to their organization, the organization says, hush, hush, we have bigger things to focus on. So everybody is being silenced. I don't want to be quiet about this, but for their job and for, their, for the better cause, they're being quiet. So when we put out this petition to have them resign, and all these women started coming out and saying, I'm so glad you did something. And... Um, they would sign and then their organization would get on them. 
and say, get your name off that petition. So we started to notice, well, I wonder what all these sponsors think about having Farrakhan um, be normalized by this, this group of women. And uh, we started contacting them all and they wanted nothing to do with standing up and preventing normalizing it. A big buzzword these days is intersectionality, how, yeah. how one thing is related to another. Yeah. And, uh, and to some extent it works, but yeah. then people are applying it where it doesn't necessarily apply. Yeah. You know, this is, this is uh, how things are in the United States, therefore you can transfer that to the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. So it's very easy to have this generation of young progressives told a story and in their in their empathy and their willingness to want to defend you know for human rights just take a side and then demonize jews so i don't know how we found ourselves here do you find yourself identifying yourself more as a jew because of anti-semitism i've been finding that a lot people who don't even think about it now are like yeah I, i'm jewish because i'm being defined by the left and the right as nothing but a jew exactly exactly I mean, um, yeah, exactly. And it's happening to a lot of people. They're feeling that they have to find each other. Jews are finding each other online, on social media. They're going to, you know, um, uh, synagogues and clubs and so on because they're feeling alienated and alone. You said earlier that you've experienced firsthand anti-Semitism. My story is that... Uh, my father uh, got work in uh, Binghamton, New York, upstate New York, as a professor without a high school degree, but as a, he became a tenured professor. He's a film artist and a sort of well-known filmmaker. And um, that was the 70s, so you could break through those kind of strictures. Um, so we started, I started growing up there, and when I was three, I was told by the neighbor across the street to get off his property or he'd shoot me. And um, I remember the word Jew, filthy. And then I made the connection because I was friends with all the kids in the neighborhood, but I hadn't gone to school yet. And I played with kids on the street. We'd play all day. And then we head to somebody's house and get lunch at, from that mom. And I would sit outside on the stoop and wait for them to come back out. So I was the only kid that wasn't allowed in anybody's home. Then, to top it off, my dad uh, showed a film with my mom pregnant. And I guess her breast was visible. And so the church came and protested and then it was in the papers that he was a Jewish pornographer. It was his wife with his child, and they called the um, student bus that commuted to the neighborhood that our apartment was in from the campus, the Jew canoe. As I was about to start public school, I told my mother, my mother learned that I wasn't being allowed in people's houses. And she said to her husband, you're gonna have to commute I know it's four hours, but we are not putting these kids in school here. So I just had a brother, was, my brother had just been born, 
we we came down here, and uh, there's anti-Semitism here too. What year was this? Could I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm gonna be. Today's the eighth. I'm gonna be fifty, and um, uh, on the fourteenth, Bastille Day. <laughs> Congratulations! Welcome to the club. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, feels feels good. Yep. So, so the, the, that incident, um, how much of an impact did that have on you later in life? Uh, is this something that's helped define your worldview of how people view Jews, or have other things happened since then that, uh, uh, well, maybe not everybody's so bad? Um, no, it made me very uh, suspicious of people. And um, I had many experiences where I chose friends that would stab me in the back for many years. So I seem to be repeating the first incident I experienced with friendships. I definitely mistrusted people. I didn't form, I didn't choose good people. I chose people for many years that um, uh, weren't right. I started drawing lines in friendships. I started for the first time recognizing um, the abuse and the the um, the uh, type of person I was allowing in was this repetition of, of you know I don't trust people so I'll choose somebody that I shouldn't trust. And then I'll just confirm that people are not to be trusted. I don't want to be an amateur psychologist, but uh, uh, but do you feel like uh, with the women's movement, this was your community, these were your friends, and that Linda Sarsour and the others stabbed you in the back? It's part of the same repeating pattern. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah. Do you think that's, that's what prompted you maybe to, to launch this organization and to, and to be so vocal about it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. Oh, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, what, uh, what what's next? You, know, you call this the Women's March for All, but what you really want to do is you don't want to launch your own physical women's march. Do you, you want to change the existing one? Is that is that the goal? Yeah. Uh, yes. We started out with the intention to um, pressure the sponsors, and we were amazed at how utterly disinterested the sponsors are. As I said. We've, it's, I'm, I'm thankful. Thank you for repeating the same cycle that my dad went through. Thank you for repeating, you know, what so many generations, or so many cycles have already gone through. I'm over the Women's March. So we're gonna kind of return full force to what we hoped the Women's March would have been had it been our ideal organization. We're just going to move forward mm -hmm. for all. I think we're going to stay focused on, um, as I said, women-centric 
uh, legislation, for instance, uh, equal pay, um, gun control, paid leave, passage of the ERA, um, dignity for incarcerated women. You know, there are real bills and there are real allies that we have. And whether they're Jewish or white doesn't matter. You know, we have, we have allies in the Democratic Party, which is also essential, I think, to protecting right now. And we protect that by being vocal and pushing them and saying, no, you can't be quiet, you can't normalize anti-Semitism anywhere, you can't normalize transphobia or misogyny anywhere, it's not okay. And um, staying focused on basically tilling the soil so that when Trump falls, what we really wanted to see happen can you know, just manifest. So we're, we're, we're working towards a future that's coming, if that makes sense. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tikkun Olam roughly translates from Hebrew into repair the world. To many Jews, this idea forms the theological basis for social justice activism. But in this excerpt from the book My Mother's Son, read to you by author David Hirschberg, this idea of repairing the world is twisted into a whole new meaning. My Mother's Son, by the way, is published by Fig Tree Books, which specializes in literature about the Jewish-American experience. Tikkun Olam, he finally said, matter-of-factly. How are you repairing the world, I asked incredulously, though in a tender tone so as not to appear insulting, my mind racing through images of bribes, vote-stealing, betting on outcomes when the results were known in advance, theft, illegal immigration, kidnapping, shakedowns, and beatings. Those were different times, he pronounced, as if he were an instructor in a classroom. So context is everything, Joel. It wasn't like it is today, where you, your brother, your children, friends, any of you has access to whatever you want. Jobs, schools, you can be a lawyer, work on Wall Street, join a big company, buy a house in any neighborhood, go places, serve in government, appear in a motion picture. For God's sake, you can even wear a kippah outside, he added with relish, proud to have used the Hebrew instead of the Yiddish word yarmulke for skullcap, which was no longer preferred by us younger Jews, who'd co-opted the Hebrew word from the sabras of Israel. But repair, I asked? It was broken, Joel. The world was cracked, the seam right down the middle. The wasps ate the cake for three centuries. They threw us the crumbs, patted us on our heads, told us we should be grateful. It had to be fixed. Not by anarchy. You've seen how that plays out. We took a page from their book. We started bit by bit. The Irish built the railroads, the Italians the streets, the Poles the tunnels, the Jews traded. If I'd been talking with one of Papa's pals, he would have said the mix, the Dagos, the Polacks, and the Yids. We all saved our nickels, had lots of children, bided our time, got the vote, and then we turned on them. Yes, indeed, we gave as good as we got. I'd never thought of a revenge motive associated with tikkun olam, most often tied to social justice efforts. And while I was a bit stunned, I wasn't put off. 
knowing what he and his generation had lived through and succeeded in doing. They had elected a descendant of Irish immigrants as senator and president and opened the doors for the children of the riffraff, something that was unimaginable for a person born when Chester Arthur was in the White House. Thank you for listening to this pilot episode of Emet, Truth. I'm hoping this can be the beginning of an exploration of issues important to the Jewish community and beyond. I want to help amplify Jewish voices, but especially those who feel marginalized. I am also managing editor of the Alliance of Independent Authors, where I host the Indie Voices podcast, and I interview Jewish authors for Publishers Weekly. So there will always be a literary component to emit. I hope to read more of my work and highlight the work of other Jewish authors. If you enjoyed this program, please consider telling your friends and colleagues about it and urge them to contribute $5 a month to keep the lights on. Contact me anytime if you have thoughts or suggestions about the show. I'm at HowardLovey, L-O-V-Y, at gmail.com or on Twitter at Howard underscore Lovey. And of course, thank you to Emmett's original Magnificent Seven patrons, the Women's March for All, Tally Blankfeld Goldsheft, Naomi Schmall, Michael Harris, Frederick Price, Erica Dreyfus, and Kim and Elliot Lovey. Until next time, don't let anybody tell you we're living in a post-truth era. Let them say what they want, but there will always be a met truth. <laughs>